morning. Okay, all things new, hope at the revelation of King Jesus. Shout out to Nate Huff for putting that together for us. Uh, But the book of Revelation, I'm not sure how you guys feel about us starting the book of Revelation. There's probably a lot of mixed feelings in the room. Some of you are maybe a little too excited. Some of you are very nervous, and you're like, am I going to be able to stay at this church? I might have to leave. What is going to happen here? So I want to put you at ease a little bit, but the the book of Revelation starts, uh, Revelation 1, 3. Let's see if this thing is going to work today. Nope. Did it? Oh, okay. Sweet. Okay. Uh, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Now, that's really not how most of us feel about the book of Revelation, is it? Right? Not blessed is the one who reads this, but we think maybe confused is the one who reads this. Or terrified is the one. Or maybe cultish is the one. Blessed? Not so much. But what I want to contend throughout this sermon series is this is largely because we've either neglected or we've misinterpreted the book of Revelation. There are lots of popular interpretations to the book of Revelation that I think actually lead us away from the purpose of the book. Not to say that there are not hard or confusing or terrifying things. There definitely are, but maybe not in the way that we assume. So the question is, how can we be blessed as a church by studying the book of Revelation? Well, that's going to depend on what we believe the purpose of this book is. What's the purpose of the book of Revelation? Well, John tells us in the book, in chapter 14, he says this. Sorry. 14.12. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. The point of the book of Revelation is to tell God's people, hold on, cling tight to Jesus. Uh, In his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, Uncivil Worship and Witness, uh, author Michael Gorman says this, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to persuade its hearers and readers, both ancient and contemporary, to remain faithful to God in spite of past, present, or possible future suffering, whatever form that suffering might take and whatever source it may have, simply for being faithful. In spite of memory, experience, or fear, Revelation tells us covenant faithfulness is possible because of Jesus and worthwhile because of the glorious future God has in store for us and for the entire created order. That the purpose is to encourage us to remain faithful to Jesus. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on Revelation, says the prophetic visions of Revelation can easily disguise the point that it was written as a letter to the churches and a letter which is pastoral in nature. The goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes, even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. So even in the midst of whatever we view what's going on in the world, we can remain hopeful because God is at work. 
Or we can see the purpose of this book as we are titling this series. Hope at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is making all things new. Because Jesus is making all things new, we can have hope at his revelation. Now, this morning, what I want to do for us is work out uh, a little bit of the background and big picture of the book of Revelation. How are we going to approach this thing, and how do, we, uh, how do we see some pictures of things so that we can know, hey, how are we going to walk through this thing together? So this morning, we're going to look at the who, when, what, where, how, why, and then one more who of the book of Revelation. Now, if you were counting, that's seven points. Now, before you revolt, seven points is very appropriate to the book of Revelation, as you're going to find out very shortly. However, that does not mean every sermon in the series on Revelation is going to have seven points, okay? Just this morning. (laughs) And maybe a few others. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. We don't know yet. So, uh, but we're going to walk through to try and get, get our bearings straight. And some of these will be quicker and some of these will be a little longer. But we want to kind of get our bearings straight as we walk into this thing. What the heck are we looking at? How do we know what it is that we're looking at? So we're going to start by reading the first 11 verses of the book of Revelation. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All right. So the first thing we want to look at is the who of Revelation, and that is who wrote the book of Revelation. It's helpful for us to know who's writing this and and where they're writing to and all of these things. Well, John tells us that he wrote it. So some guy named John wrote this book according to verses 1, 4, 9, and 10, right? Just in these first 11 verses we see who... uh, that, that it's identified as John. 
Now, there are different options that scholars have laid out for who John is. It could be some guy named John who no one knows and is unknown to the church, but has some level of authority over the churches in Asia Minor. Well, that seems like an odd choice, but a lot of scholars take that choice, that it's this some unknown John. I think it's far better for us to assume that this is the Apostle John. The Apostle John, who was with Jesus, one of his disciples, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now the book of Revelation. Now, the reasons for that are, are quite plain and obvious, that the New Testament writers... Uh, for the church to accept a New Testament book, it really had to have some connection to an apostle. This was really important. They needed to know that it was somehow connected to an apostle. Now, Revelation did have some question marks making it into the, to the New Testament canon. Some early church fathers were like, no, this isn't a book that's for us. Uh, but overwhelmingly, it was accepted early on and then maintained the test of time. But it's it makes a lot more sense to say that uh, John, and an author, John, who is writing to the churches with authority, would be the Apostle John. As well as, we have the testimony of church fathers, particularly of a church father named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a disciple of a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was a martyr who lived a very long life, walked with Jesus very faithfully his whole life, and died at an old age. But Polycarp was a direct disciple of John. So Irenaeus says that John the Apostle wrote this book, and he's two people removed. We should probably trust Irenaeus. It seems like a pretty trustworthy guy, rather than, like, you know, from our vantage point, you know, thousands of years later, to say, no, it probably wasn't that guy. It was probably this other John that no one knows. <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense. So we believe rightly to say that the Apostle John wrote this book. And this is really important because if you uh, take a class on religious studies or anything like that, uh, there's a lot of uh, New Testament scholars who will doubt the authorship of books based upon uh, new scholarship and doubt you know, what is plainly said. Right, So they doubt certain letters of Paul, certain letters of John, all of these things. Uh, but it's really important for us to know the early church was very uh, committed to connecting the, the writings that they were accepting to the apostles because these were the ones that Jesus commissioned to give his truth. And they did not accept uh, what is called a, a pseudepigraphal uh, authorship, which is somebody writing in John's name. They didn't accept that because that's called lying, right? And so it kind of denies the actual ethical uh, imperatives of the scriptures to say, hey, no, 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 we, we know that this guy is writing as if he was John, but he's really not John. That wouldn't make a lot of sense for the church to accept, and they did not accept that early on. And so it's really important for us to remember that. Now, the other who is, who is John writing to? Well, he tells us very clearly in verse 4, he says, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Seven churches. Now, uh, he's going to write, again, it says in uh, 11, it tells you the names of the churches that he's writing to. Now, once we start to uh, understand that there are seven churches that Paul or that John is writing to, it helps us understand that whatever interpretation we come up with for the book of Revelation, if it made no sense and did not apply to the seven churches he was writing to, 
we are probably missing it. Most interpretations that are modern, modern interpretations given to the book of Revelation, these seven churches would be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. None of that fits us or our lives. So if it doesn't apply to these seven churches, it's probably not the right application. It's probably not the right interpretation. Because John is specifically writing to these seven churches. Now, why seven churches? We're going to find out here soon uh, what, the book, or what the number seven means for uh, John. It doesn't mean that there were only seven churches here, but seven is a number of completion. And so John, by extension, in writing to seven very real churches, he's saying, I'm writing to these churches which have real people in them and are really historical places, and yet also I'm writing to the whole church because I chose to write to seven churches. I'm writing to the whole church. So this is applicable to us today because we're part of the global universal church. So, now this... uh, this is really important because oftentimes uh, chapter 2 starts a section of letters to the seven churches, right? And he identifies specific things about each of these churches. But we often see that as a section that is distinct from the rest of it. But John is introducing the whole book as a letter to these seven churches. Meaning all of the visions, all of the other things that happen also apply to these seven churches. Not just the individual letters that were written to them. The whole book uh, determ- er, is for those churches. So uh, it's very important for us. Now, there's lots of vivid pictures throughout this, but what's really important is it's written to the church. It's not written for or to the world. Well, we're going to look later. There's uh, the identification of Babylon, which is an ancient city which was an enemy of God's people. And so uh, John uses that metaphor to talk about the current Babylon that they are living in, Rome, and then any Babylon that God's people live in throughout them, including us today, who still live in Babylon, uh, a world order that's not with King Jesus, right? So like that is what it is. Now, it's written not to the world, it's written to the church. So even as we see vivid pictures of judgment on Babylon, remember that this is written to the church not to Babylon, meaning we ought to take stake first on what is God calling us to do? Not what is God calling anyone else out there to do, but what is God calling us to do, his people? Now, when was Revelation written? That's the second point. When was Revelation written? Probably sometime late first century. We don't have an exact date, but probably sometime around 96 A.D., Uh, there's some important reasons why we believe that. In 70 AD, uh, Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And it's a pretty important event that uh, kind of marks a lot of really important things for the church uh, because this was uh, the end of the Old Covenant. The temple's gone. The temple is now the church. Now, the temple destruction in 70 AD is an important marker because it's after that point that first century Jews started referring to Rome as Babylon. So it's a pretty good indication that when John refers to Rome as Babylon, he's probably writing after 70 AD. Also, there is some widespread persecution, it seems like, meaning uh, we should look for Roman empires, uh, emperors that did that, and the Roman emperor Domitian uh, had more widespread persecution of the church 
and also required emperor worship, which is something that's going to come up in the book of Revelation. So we think it was probably written during his reign, so probably around 96 AD. And that's the testimony of the church fathers as well. The other clue that we get is he addresses the church at Laodicea, a city, an ancient city, that uh, he addresses them as rich. Well, they, they suffered a massive earthquake uh, much earlier. And so if it's an earlier date, they probably haven't recovered from the earthquake yet. So the fact that it is, uh, he addresses them as rich probably means it's a little bit later of a date. So what is Revelation? It's our third point. What is Revelation? How do we understand what this thing that we're about to read is? Well, the first thing we can know is that John says it's a letter to churches. He says it's a letter. This is a letter to the seven churches. So it was a circular letter that was meant to go to all of these different churches. And if you look at a map of where these churches are located, they kind of make a loop around Asia Minor. So it was to be passed from one church to the next. So first of all, it's a letter. Well, we know how to, what to do with letters, right? The New Testament is full of letters. We know how to interpret letters. That makes sense. But this is a very special kind of letter. And John tells us in the very first verse what it is. He says, this is a revelation. Now, that word is the uh, Greek word uh, where we get the word apocalypse from. So this is an apocalyptic letter. An apocalyptic, prophetic, circular letter. So, it's a letter that's sent to churches. We kind of understand, right, the book of Romans, Ephesians, all of those books are that. So we kind of know how to do that. But it's an apocalyptic letter. So what does that mean? Well, we don't really understand very well how to interpret apocalyptic literature because it's not really what we read. When's the last time anyone picked up some apocalyptic literature, right? That's not what we read. But this was common, more common in the first century. And so it's, it makes sense that we would read this book and be confused at points because it's a different kind of literature that we don't normally read. So we need to understand, hey, okay, what are some features of apocalyptic literature if we're to understand how to interpret this book well? Well, apocalyptic literature is a specific type of prophetic literature, right? So an Old Testament prophet, right, was bringing God's word to his people in the present moment and also foretelling future things. Now, when we think of prophecy, we typically think in that realm of foretelling future things. That was certainly a part of the prophetic uh, uh, books of the Old Testament, absolutely. But much more of prophecy was written for God's people today to know how to respond to what God is doing today. Also in the future, but what is God doing right now, right? And so prophecy has this sort of uh, focus to it. But apocalyptic prophecy has a focus on the latter days, the end of the world, end of world timing, those types of things. Focuses on end times. But the focus of apocalyptic literature is less on what is actually happening in those things and more on who is revealing those things. That's why it says the revelation from Jesus Christ. Who is the one that is revealing this prophecy is so important for prophetic apocalyptic literature. So it's a focus on who is revealing it. Now, one of the other things that is true of apocalyptic literature is it is highly symbolic and descriptive. Highly symbolic and descriptive. It is meant to be seen, felt, 
smelled. It's meant to have vivid pictures, right? Prophets were the ones who were standing up saying, hey, guys, pay attention. You're not paying attention. You're not paying attention to normal communication. So I got to tell it to you in wild ways, right? If you read the book of Ezekiel, there are all sorts of things that Ezekiel does that you're like, what are you doing, man? It's like, I'm going to lay on my side for like several months to show you this point, right? It's this vivid picture in which God's people aren't paying attention. And so I'm going to wake you up. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, you're going to wake up. There's a lot of vivid pictures. There's a lot of very descriptive things. And so we need to understand that this is, this is the point of those things. Now, apocalyptic literature is also meant to be similar to parables. When Jesus told parables, what did he say? He said, those who have ears to hear will hear. Part of the idea of parables was to reveal to God's people something and also to conceal to the rest of the world. So it is kind of meant to be a little bit confusing. Right? It's meant to be a little bit confusing because it's meant to wake you up to ask questions. What does this mean? How do we understand this? How are we not getting this right? If God is going to show up in this kind of terror and judgment, what must we do? That's the kind of questions that this is meant to do for us. So, this, this, uh, this idea of highly symbolic literature is meant to help us understand, okay, how do we understand all the different parts of this? Now, this book is a circular letter of apocalyptic literature. And so there are a number of different visions in this, but you can break Revelation down into seven sections. There are seven sections to the book of Revelation. And each of these seven sections covers a parallel time period. Okay? It, it covers the same section of time, seven different times. There are these seven sections to it. And it's what we call progressive parallelism. So it's a parallel time period, but it gets more and more intense. So the longer you read the book of Revelation, when you're at the end, it's far more intense than when you're at the beginning. And so it's going to cover this same time period seven different times, and it's going to progressively get more intense. Okay? Now, I'm going to help you out here with this, because we're going to move on to the next point, which will help us. The where of Revelation. So we've already discussed, it's geographically, it's going to these seven churches in Asia Minor. But where is it at in history, in redemptive historical history? What time period does this cover? All right, so now we're going to look at some charts. All right, you knew the charts were coming, but these are not scary charts, guys. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. We've got to help you out, understand what's happening. Okay, so the time frame of the book of Revelation, there are two massively important events that everyone, no matter what uh, interpretation you take, and people take very different interpretations to the book of Revelation, and so uh, I'm, I'm going to present a specific view to you as we walk through this, uh, but that doesn't mean that you have to adopt my view, right? There are other acceptable views to the book of Revelation. What's not acceptable is to miss these two major events. One is the first coming of Jesus. The incarnation, life, death, resurrection. When we talk about the first coming of Jesus, it includes all of that. Jesus coming as a baby, him living his full life, dying on the cross, and raising from the dead. This is the first advent of Christ. Okay? So that happens at the beginning. The end of time, 
some point that no one knows the date. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you a date when Jesus is returning. Just going to let that out there. That's not what we're doing through the book of Revelation. Okay? So the second coming of Jesus, the final judgment and salvation. Everyone agrees that those two things, one did happen, and this one is going to happen as we look at the book of Revelation. Okay? So the question is, what happens in between this? And how does the book of Revelation cover any time in between this? So I'm going to point to a couple of things here. Well, like I said, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is a really important event. And some people see that as a very important event to understanding the book of Revelation. Some people will see a lot of Revelation as happening prior to AD 70. That the book of Revelation covers only this spot right here. That is not the view we take. I think it's unhelpful for a lot of reasons. But most people, when they talk about the book of Revelation, think that the book of Revelation covers this period right here. Just the very last days before Jesus returns. It's all about the very final end. Everything in the book of Revelation is in the future from us right now and from the people that it was written to. And for the people it was written to, it's very far in the future, right? Because it's still in the future for us. And so part of the reason why, and we're going to look at this a little bit later, is because a lot of people don't hit on the symbolic nature of some of the things. And so they're like, well, I've never seen that happen. I mean, we've never seen a pale green horse come out of the clouds. So clearly that happens in the future. Well, what if that's a symbolic image? What if that's something different? What if there are different ways to understand those things, right? So if you've never seen some of these things, you're like, okay, of course, this happens in the future. Well, we're not reading a newspaper, right? <laughs> that's not what this is. And so we got to understand those things. So I don't think that that's only what the book of Revelation covers. But I'm going to help you to understand, hopefully, throughout this entire time, is that the book of Revelation covers this entire time period between the first and second coming of Jesus. What we call the inner advent period, or the church age. The inner advent period, or the church age, is the entire time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. This whole time period. So, the churches that John is writing to fall in that time period. City Hope, we fall in that time period. Now, I'm not going to chart us because I don't know where we are at in that time period, right? This is a chart without dates, <laughs> except for 70 AD. That's the only thing we know, right? So, so it covers this entire time period. Now, here's what's important. There are some different time periods laid out in the book of Revelation. We're going to come back to this chart multiple times as we walk through. But there's this thing called this thousand years. What is this thousand years that we refer to? Well, I think it's this whole time period. And I'm, I'll tell you why when we get there. But there's another time period that's shown, which is three and a half years. It's also called 42 months or 1260 days. It's the exact same thing. Now, the reason we think that this is all this same time period is because of the symbolic nature of these specific numbers and the symbolic nature of how they show up. They show up in multiple places in the book of Revelation, these different time frames. And so they are markers to say, hey, we're talking about the same time period talking about the same thing. Here's a really helpful analogy, and I forgot to look up who said it. <laughs> I'll tell you where you can find out. Uh, so uh, my uh, seminary professor, uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, uh, taught my class on Hebrews and Revelation, and I uh, re-listened to all those lectures, and he quoted somebody, and I can't remember who he quoted, but he, that had given him this analogy. So I'm just going to 
give it to you. I, I'm going to embellish the analogy a little bit too, so it's kind of mine. Um, but the way for you to understand this is, right, coming up soon in the fall, there's going to be a Monday night football game where the Steelers are going to beat the Colts. That, that is actually going to happen. That's the, the prophecy there. So, uh, now, in that game, somebody's going to throw a touchdown pass. And when that touchdown pass is thrown, for the next several minutes, you're going to watch a replay of that touchdown pass. But you're going to watch it from all these different angles. You're going to watch it from the angle of the quarterback. You're going to watch it from the angle of the receiver. You're going to watch it from the wide-angle lens. You're going to watch it from all these different angles. This is what the book of Revelation is. Here's the time period. Here's the thing that's happening. Jesus is coming back. Let's look at it from all these different angles. Now, if somebody from the first century were to show up and watch that football game, they might assume, man, they threw four touchdown passes in a row. Well, no, you don't understand how replay works. Let me show you. Do you see the time stamp? See, it's the same time period multiple times. The reason they wouldn't understand that is because they haven't watched a football game or seen a TV or watched replay. They don't know how it works. We do the same thing in reverse with the book of Revelation. We read it and we're like, oh, man, the world is going to get crazy. There's going to be this earthquake. There's going to be hailstorms that are going to destroy the world. And then, wait, there's more hailstorms that are destroying the world again? Wait, half the stars fall out of the sky. And then a third of the stars get wiped from the sky. But I thought they all fell, right? We're confused because we're not picking up on the timestamps. Picking up on the clues to say, wait a second, this is the same thing from a different angle. We're looking at the same time period from all these different angles. So, this is not how the book of Revelation feels. This is how the book of Revelation feels. It's more like a spiral of, hey, we're walking through this same time period multiple times and it's getting more intense So we're not going to read it or feel it in this way like anything else you've read. Because you haven't read anything like this, except for Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel. That's the only apocalyptic literature maybe you've read. And so it's right for you to be like, okay, that's a little confusing. So we're going to help you walk through these pieces to understand how it goes. So that it's not super confusing. So, does that make sense? I mean, as much sense as that can make, right? As a diagram, right? Super helpful. Clear. Thanks, Josh. So the reality is, that the other question we have then is, how should we read Revelation? I don't know what point we're on, but we're on point how. So I think we've got a few more. So how should we read Revelation? Well, a lot of people will ask you, is the book of Revelation literal? Well, what do you mean by literal? Some people, when they use the word literal, they mean... Is it serious? Like, is it going to happen? Is it actual? Or is it just fantasy made up? Well, if you mean, is it serious? Is it actual? Is it going to happen? Yes. If by literal you mean what literal actually literally means, that this will happen exactly woodenly like this, then no. Symbolic. Now, everyone holds to symbols Some people hold to less than others, right? Because here, Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. Well, who's that? That's Jesus, right? Lamb that had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes. 
Jesus has seven eyes? Well, that's going to be wild. Because I thought he maintained his resurrected body. Maybe that's why the disciples saw him after he resurrected. He had seven eyes. Why were you guys confused? He had seven eyes and seven horns. Come on, you should figure this out, right? Clearly, this is symbolic language. So here's the, here's the hard part, right? If you take some of these things to be like literal walking through history, like this thing is going to happen. This hailstorm is going to happen. This thing is going to happen right here. The stars are going to fall from the sky right here. Well, then you better be prepared to meet Jesus with seven horns and seven eyes. Or maybe a lot of these are actually pictures that first century folks would have known were pictures of something else. Stars falling from the sky is apocalyptic language for the world is in trouble and it's going to end. That's all that means. It doesn't mean literally every star is going to fall from the sky. Because that would be really bad, right? Like, it would not be good. Especially because we saw all those stars in that new telescope in its picture. There's a lot of stars. There's a lot of stars that fall from the sky. We're in big trouble, guys. But guess what? That's the point, is for you to say, "Uh uh-oh, we're in big trouble, guys. That's actually the point. It's to say, if that were to happen, we would be in huge trouble. What are we supposed to do? Right? Those are the types of questions that this book is meant to get us to ask. So it's highly symbolic. In his book, More Than Conquerors, William Hendrickson says this, As a rule, the details belong to the picture or to the symbol. We must not try to give a deeper interpretation to the details unless the interpretation of these details is necessary in order to bring out the full meaning of the central idea of the symbol. So, the symbol, it's, it's like a parable, right? When Jesus told a parable, if you go to try and find every detail of the parable, like, oh, well, this detail means this, right? Like the parable of the sower. Well, the rocks of the rocky ground mean exactly this. No, well, Jesus tells us what it means, and it's a broad picture. It's meant to be symbolic and a picture to get you to understand what it is, not to press every detail. So we're not going to press every detail. Now, some of these symbols are numbers. So I want to cover a couple of these numbers for us so that when we get to them, we'll remind you, but some of the big ones. Seven is a number of perfection or completeness. Seven days to a week. It's the completion of God's creation. Seven is this perfect number of completion. So seven plus any multiplier of seven is, you should think, completion, perfection. So there are seven sections. There are seven book, or seven churches. Then we're going to see there are seven uh, seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, right? Seven's going to repeat itself all the time. It's the perfection, the completeness of God's salvation or his judgment. It is total and complete. Four is another number. Four means comprehensive. So, every tribe, language, people, and nation. Four things. Means every kind of person there is out there. North, south, east, west. Four. It's everything. We're going to see an angel goes to the four corners of the world. Not because the world's flat, but that's a way to understand the four corners, right? Right? The completeness, the comprehensiveness covers everything. Twelve is another number of completeness. It completely covers something. Twelve is complete. So we're going to see twelve tribes. 
and its multipliers. 24 elders. 12 Old Testament, 12 New Testament. 12 tribes. 12 is complete. And its multipliers. So there's this number, if you've read any of Revelation, right? There's 144,000. What does 144,000 cover? Well, it's a multiplier of 12. It's the completeness of God's people. Also, a thousand means big. That's all it means. So if it's 12,000, that means a lot of completeness, right? It's a big number. That's what thousand means. Six is another number. We'll talk a little bit about six, not a ton, all right? Six simply means imperfect. Six is not seven. It's all six is. It's not seven. It's the number of man. It's not a number of perfection, the number of God, the number of completeness. It's the number of man or mankind or the world's order, number of incompletion. Three and a half is half of seven. So it's not yet fully complete. It just means we're not there yet. That's all three and a half means. So why is it three and a half years for this time frame? Well, because the major change in the globe is the first coming of Jesus. Right? So if seven is all of time, after that, three and a half. After, after Jesus comes, the rest of the time, three and a half. Until Jesus returns again. So these visions are symbolic. So if we're to read this, we need to read it understanding the symbols, and we also need to read it within its first century context. That people within the first century would understand what these things are. So if, we're, if we say, well, there's some locusts here, it's probably because John didn't know what a helicopter looked like, but it was really a helicopter. Because it's a locust with some armor. It's probably what it is. People actually see that as an interpretation. But first century folks would not understand that. They would be like, what is happening? What is that thing, right? No, they understand what a locust is. It's God's judgment, right? Because it refers to plagues that God has on Egypt. It's not meant to push these details. But it's like more than just that. It's like end times judgment, right? So the locusts have armor, right? They're scary locusts. But we need to read it within this first century context. We also need to read it understanding the Old Testament. We need to read it with an Old Testament lens. Because so much of the book of Revelation comes from the Old Testament. This book has more, it has zero direct quotes from the Old Testament but more allusions to Old Testament texts than the entire New Testament combined. John, at this point, is an old man who's read his Bible very well. So when God speaks to him in visions, how does God speak to him? Through Old Testament visions. There are specific things that are going to come up that John knows relate to what God's doing in Daniel or in Ezekiel or in these other places. That's what helps us understand what it is that the fulfillment of these things looks like. So if it's foreign to the Old Testament, if it's foreign to the first century, it's probably foreign to the book of Revelation. We need to remember those things. And we need to read it with this already and not yet tension of the New Testament. The reality is, the book of Revelation, more than any other book, holds the tension that every New Testament book has, which is, Jesus has accomplished everything for you, and you don't yet feel it all. Right? That's, that's what it is. Your, your salvation is completely accomplished. Do you feel like that? Well, no, not yet. It's not fully realized. It's completely accomplished, not yet fully realized. That tension is the tension of the book of Revelation. 
So you should feel that tension as you read the book. You should feel, wait a second, God is already at work. He is reigning and ruling. Yet he hasn't crushed his enemies yet. He hasn't, we don't actually experience every piece of that yet. Because it's already and not yet. Okay, finally, why should we read the book of Revelation? Why continue to read this book? Well, I want to pick up on a few things from verses 4 to 8. This letter is from John to the seven churches to the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. This book is meant to encourage us to remain faithful. Jesus is the faithful witness. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. It is encouragement for us to remain faithful. That's why we read it. Paul says, grace and peace to you. I am giving this to you so that you would know God's grace and that you would be encouraged to remain faithful. We also read this because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the world. He's Lord of Lords. Now, for you and I as Christians who have read these and and know Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that sounds awesome, but maybe doesn't mean the same sting as it did in the first century. You see, Caesar was Lord. Rome said that the emperor was Lord. So Jesus is Lord means Caesar and no other is not. Jesus is the only Lord. The whole book of Revelation is meant to be a a little bit of a, a prophetic letter against the empire. The empire. Don't choose the empire. Because the fate is sealed for the empire. It will lose. Babylon will fall. Rome will fall. Every kingdom of the world will fall. This kingdom that we live in will fall. This empire will fall. It will fall. Everyone will fall. Jesus is Lord. Choose Jesus, not empire. That's the whole point of the book. Remain faithful to Jesus. Choose him, not empire. It is an encouragement for our witness. He says he has made us a kingdom of priests. Oh, yeah, right there. He has made us a kingdom of priests for our God. We are to be priests to the world. We are to bring Jesus to the world. This is for our witness. And it is for hope for the future. Hope for the future. Now the final why is really the second who of Revelation. Who is the focus of Revelation? King Jesus. What we're going to see throughout this book and what I want you to see more than anything else more than the details of visions or more than seeing any of these other things is the point of the book is Jesus is glorious. 
There's a reason that so many worship songs come from the book of Revelation. There's a reason that John has such poetic language to describe Jesus. Because in the Spirit, he is taken to see the King of glory. And he is transformed by him. Jesus is the faithful witness to God. He declares who God is and what he's like. Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. Giving us the hope that we also will rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead for us. John sees Jesus with his embodied resurrection body. Knowing that I will also get an embodied resurrection body. He is the first to rise from the dead. He is the king of all kings. There is no king but King Jesus. He rules over all the nations. Any time throughout all of history in which any ruler has set themselves up to be the ruler of the world in all their arrogance and pomp and circumstance with all their military power, they are nothing before King Jesus. King Jesus rules the world. He is in charge of the globe. He sits on his throne Right now. John's going to take us right into the throne room to see Jesus on the throne. He is in charge of all things. As Proverbs says, the, the, the king's heart is like a stream of water and the Lord directs it wherever he wishes. Jesus is in charge of the world, not evil, wicked rulers. He is our Savior. He shed his blood for us. This is the crazy thing that we're going to see throughout the book. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has more glory and honor than any king, than any ruler throughout all of human history, and yet he went to a cross for you and I, rebels against him. He is both king who is glorious and savior who sheds his very own blood for you to be welcomed home. He is not a distant ruler who says, go out there, subjects, and do this thing for me. No, he says, I will go there for you. I will go ahead of you. I will go to the cross for you. The point of the book of Revelation is to get you to say, I want to be with the lamb who was slain. So if you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation, I want to tell you that Jesus will return surely. And you can welcome him and be welcomed by him by looking to his first coming where he went to a cross for you and I to pay for our sins so that we could be welcomed home, forgiven, and loved eternally by God. Jesus is the coming one. It's interesting, the book is going to say at the beginning, God is the one who always was, who is, and who is yet to come. And in the end, it's going to say he's the God who always was and who is. Because he's coming back. He is no longer yet to come. He is the coming one. He will surely return. As surely as it is that we look back at the cross, that's as sure as it is that Jesus is coming in glory to welcome his bride home. We're going to see pictures of that. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Hopefully you picked up on it in this section. There is some great Trinitarian language throughout this whole section. There is God the Father, 
The sevenfold spirit, which again does not mean there are seven Holy Spirits, right? Seven is completeness. The fullness of God's spirit and Jesus the Son. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. That is the God of the universe and that is King Jesus. That is who we worship. He is the one who has come for us and for our salvation. So as we walk through this book together, as we look to see that Jesus is making all things new, let us cling fast to King Jesus and worship him. Let's not get distracted by anything else, but keep our eyes on King Jesus as John reveals him for us. All right, let's pray together because we need God's help if we're to see King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you for this book that you revealed to Jesus to give to John this book for us to see and worship King Jesus. God, would you settle our hearts that we would worship King Jesus? Would you settle our hearts that we would focus our attention on who you are and what you're doing in the world And that you would transform us as we worship you, King Jesus. Jesus, would you reign now and forevermore in our hearts and in the world. And would you help us to be a kingdom of priests in this city and faithful witnesses to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.